You see, it's, an, it's all an intricate plot. Orchestrating the sickness of our pastors at the very last minute, clearly too short an interval to bring in anyone competent to substitute. Also that I can force feed Corinthians on all those who chose not to attend my class. It's wicked, I know, I know but a clever ruse. And this is my last chance to take advantage. Where is 1 Corinthians? There it is. Thank you, New Testament. Yeah. This is my last chance to take advantage of that lengthy letter for a last-minute sermon, since in approximately one hour's time, I'll be delivering just after just over four years the very last lesson on 1 Corinthians. The last, I promise, the last, never to be heard from again. So let me draw your attention first to the penultimate paragraph of chapter 16 of 1 Corinthians. And to begin with, let's read verses 13 to 18. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanos and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Father God, we ask your blessings on this moment. It is my prayer that you would be glorified in this text, that your spirit would pervade, that your son would receive all the praise and all the glory for what we are about to study. We ask this in His name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Parting exhortations and a loving goodbye. In the passage before us, verses 13 to 18, and later, verses 21 to 24, Paul closes what has been a rather lengthy letter to the Corinth church. In these last few verses, he leaves them with his final, most pointed exhortations for living, as well as the most heartfelt farewell he offered to any of his churches. First, the exhortations. Like bullets fired from a Gatling gun, the apostle fires off a string of staccato imperatives to the church. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Each one is brief, but heavy with meaning for the members of that church. And every verb is a command to not just do this, but to make such a behavior a regular way of life. The apostle is saying, don't just do this once to please me. I want you to live this way. This phrase is often used in an eschatological context. For example, be watchful, stay awake, for the Lord could return at any moment. As in Matthew 24, 42, Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Considering the situation in the church, however, and Paul's counsel in the first 15 chapters of this letter, I think it's best to consider this from, the, from that overall context. 
as does the NIV with be on your guard. Ah, that's the idea. As well as the context of the phrase that follows, stand firm in the faith. That is, be alert to those things that will do harm to your faith. Keep an eye out. We know that a critical weakness of the Corinth church was its susceptibility to corrosive outside influence. Paul here reminds them, watch out for that. Don't let it occur. Don't let it in. Much as he did when bidding goodbye to the Ephesians, turn please to Acts chapter 20. In this passage in the, to the Ephesians, he goes into greater detail, a much stronger emphasis. Acts 20, let's begin reading at verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Who can... Deny that even today, <laughs> even more so today, the wolves are just outside the church door. Indeed, in many cases, the wolves are pouring through the door and taking over the church. Today, as then, there are those speaking perverse things. Against those we are called to be alert and not let it happen. And what better counsel can parents give to their children before sending them off to college or off into the business world? Remain alert. This world will try everything it can to pull you away from Christ. As Paul continues, therefore, stand firm in the faith. These two are opposite sides of the same coin. Part of remaining alert to threats to one's faith is standing firm on the truths of that faith. And we stand firm by remaining watchful for those threats. This is the tail end of a recurring theme in this letter. Here the word translated stand firm or stand fast, depending on your version is stakete, stakete, the root of which is steko, which is almost an onomatopoeia. What's an onomatopoeia, you ask? I'll tell you. A word that sounds like the action it describes. A word that sounds like the action it describes. This is almost that. What do we call it when a gymnast lands a routine without moving his or her feet? We say they Stick the landing. Stecco, that's what it means. To be without moving. To be stationary. Paul has been on this repeatedly in this letter. He raised it in his discussion on familial behavior in chapter 7, verse 37. He encouraged them by praising what little firmness they did have in chapter 11, verse 2. Then Paul bookends the previous chapter which is 15, with calls for them to stand fast on the word He delivered to them. Look at that. Chapter 15, the beginning of it. Verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Now go to the bottom of the chapter, verse 56. 
The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Of course, this command assumes a familiarity with said faith. Paul said to the Corinthians that they were to, quote, hold fast the word which I preached to you, end quote. For their knowledge and understanding of the gospel, they had little more than the teaching they received from him and a few others, along with the occasional letter that would come by shared by the various churches. We have the advantage of holding in our hands every last word of the Spirit-inspired canon. From beginning to end, for easy reading and reference in myriad flavors, So what's our excuse? To stand firm in the faith, we must know that faith as well as we know ourselves. Then he continues, Act like men. Be strong. The Greek andrezethe means be manly. I love the King James Version. Quit you like men. Quit you like men. I suppose in this confused world we live in, there are those who wouldn't even understand this. And if they do, are surely offended by such a statement. Well, tough. With these two imperatives... Paul is telling the Corinthians of either sex, yes, there are only two, to act like a strong, determined man when it comes to defend the gospel and your faith in it. This need not be a specific reference to the male of the species. It might also imply grow up. Stop being so wishy-washy. Take responsibility Stand strong for that which you claim to believe. Quit bending with the wind just to get along. Hence the title of our First Corinthians study, Standing Firm in a Slippery World. Then Paul adds in verse 14, after, being, after these, this list of strong imperatives, Let all that you do be done in love. Those who have endured the last four years in 1 Corinthians can think back on all the dirty laundry we've been reading of in this letter and understand right off what Paul is saying with this. His wonderful sermon on agape in chapter 13 is connected to his discussion of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 by its last verse, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. And then he takes, uses chapter 13 to explain that that way is agape, love. Not just one more gift among many. No, it's not another gift. It's the manner by which we are to administer our gifts. He spends all of chapter 12 talking all about these different gifts. And then he says, now, these gifts are to be used with love. That's the way. Love is to encompass every one of our gifts. Everything we do. Love for his brothers and sisters in Christ is to be the Christian's way of life. And here's one of the more applicable lessons from this letter. Add up and list all the noxious goings-on in the Corinth church, and they were legion. As one commentator puts it, quote, if they were to do all things in love, 
then these other things would not be happening. If love is the way we live, those things would not happen. For example, in the Corinth church, there was the arrogance and elitism of some at the Lord's Supper and communal meal, consuming their own rich delicacies that they brought with them before the working poor even showed up and not sharing with them. Some in the church taking fellow believers to court when wronged. And there were those who demanded their rights to eat whatever they liked, even if it were meat sacrificed to a pagan idol. Actually sitting down to fellowship with other non-believers in an idol's temple. Demanding those rights, even knowing they were doing harm to the faith of a fellow brother in Christ. You don't do things like that when you live in love. Our love for each other in the body of Christ is to permeate everything we do, everything we say, and every purpose we pursue. It's to be the way we live. A better way, as Paul puts it. It's to be the motive behind our use of every spirit gift we have. Now the next paragraph. Let's Read verses 15 to 16. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. One has the impression that As he neared the end of this long letter, his mind was working out of sync with his mouth as he dictated to his amanuensis. Or perhaps an afterthought occurred to him that needed to be inserted. If I was editing this verse, I'd rearrange it a little bit. Let's figure out first who he's talking about. Who are these men? Stephanos is the principal character, and you'll pardon me if I, if I pronounce that two different ways. There's one right way, and I keep doing it the other way. Stephanos is the principal character. He's the head of a household, which in that time was more than just a family of kin. It would include work associates, servants, slaves, Most commentators conclude that he's probably the one that brought the letter from Corinth to Paul. Paul is, for the last half of this letter, our 1 Corinthians, Paul is answering a letter that was brought to him from the church. He's answering it. And probably Stephanos is the one who brought that, these three men. And he's the one who has just delivered this letter, our 1 Corinthians, to the church. They're the mailmen. And much more, as we'll see. So he and his fellows are there as this letter is being read to the church. Fortunatus, a common Latin name, and Achaicus, literally one who is from Achaia, are the companions of Stephanos and members of his household. Most seem to think that they were either slaves or freedmen. Both, we can safely assume, were believers and fellow ministers with Stephanos serving alongside of him. Paul speaks of them as pl- in the plural. He says, honor these men. We might think of Stephanos and his household as part of the founding members of the Corinth church. For Paul here says that the church knows that, quote, they were the first fruits of Achaia. That is, they were the first to be converted and baptized. Since Paul admits in chapter 1, verse 16, Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanos, end quote. Achaia was the Roman designation for most of their Grecian province. 
But Paul probably uses the term Achaia here to refer to the immediate area around Corinth. So he's, he's just speaking regionally, roughly. <clears throat> More than just being the first, Paul says they were the first fruits, which carries with it the expectation and promise as with the resurrection of Christ, that there will be more to follow. Flip back to chapter 15. Starting with verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. The resurrection of Christ Jesus is critical to our future with him. His death on the cross redeemed us. Yes. But without His resurrection to pave the way, we'd only be redeemed for the grave. We'd be stuck there. What good is that? Christ was the first fruits, not just the first to be raised from the dead to a glorified state, but as the one making it possible for all believers to be raised from the dead. If He had not been raised, we would not be raised. We'd be stuck there for eternity. So we will be raised from the dead or translated while still living at the rapture. last things next week. To a glorified state suitable for fellowship with Father God and the Son for eternity. We will be raised into a body suitable to spend eternity in glory. Be a glorified body. Thank goodness. So, back to 16.15. The Apostle is saying that the members of the household of Stephanos were the first of many more to follow and, quote, have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, end quote. By the way, the King James Version translates verse 15 and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Addicted themselves. Now, I was scratching my head for a while over that. But as I thought about it, I thought, well, maybe that's not too bad. You know, the King James Version very often has it right. They just don't have it in our vernacular, that's all. And this may be one of those. Because you read that and you say, addicted, what is he? Perhaps the translators in the 17th century meant that like someone addicted to strong drink, Stephanos and his household felt strongly called to minister in the church. That they were compelled. That they had to do it. They would have been miserable if they hadn't done it. It's what they were called to do. They were just being obedient. They had to do it. In the way that someone addicted to drink has to take that drink. Or addicted to anything. Some of us may have been given spirit gifts that become more than just an ability, more than just a skill. They become a compulsion. A driving force to the extent that we're miserable if we do not exercise that gift or gifts. We're compelled to do it. 
Maybe that's the idea behind the King James, and I think it is the idea behind these three men. They had to do it. In any case, the Greek phrase, which I will not attempt to pronounce, means that they appointed themselves in an orderly fashion. Now, this shouldn't be read as a self-centered ego kind of a thing, like these guys pushing themselves to the front of the line. Oh, we'll do it, we'll do it. We want to do it. No. They set themselves aside for service to other Christians. They knew that this was their calling. They knew that they would be disobedient if they didn't do it. So they made themselves available. They earnestly and dependably made themselves available for ministry to the saints. Just delivering these letters, that was risky. That was dangerous. They considered themselves called to that. So they did it. Now, for verse 16, which is best understood by removing that parenthetical phrase in the NASB. Now I urge you, brethren that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. Verse 16 makes it clear that Stephanos and the men in his household were more than just solid members of the congregation performing good deeds, but were spiritual leaders, almost certainly having a responsibility for teaching, perhaps preaching the word. Because of this, they were due honor and respect for the work they were doing in and for the church. That respect would include the members' submission, as Paul puts it. Submission in the sense of voluntary yielding in love. One of the truths learned from this letter is that God the Father, through the ministry of His Spirit, this is good, forms and sculpts the character and capabilities of the local church in a precise way of His choosing. The people, the personalities, the gifts they bring to the assembly, all are by His design. Turn please to chapter 12. Let's begin at verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Why do you have your gift? For the common good, for the body of Christ. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Now that's the Spirit's role. Now look at verse 18. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. You thought you had something to do with this, don't you? No. It's all of God. This mix, it's all His idea. We take comfort knowing that this and every local body is in His capable hands. God is the one sculpting this church for His glory and the furtherance of the gospel. 
Knowing that he is in charge helps us to accept and honor his sovereign hierarchy. God and his spirit are the ones who have given this church its shepherds. Our pastors, our elders, our deacons. And we are to be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. And in verses 17 to 18, Paul speaks of another reason why he treasures these men. Verse 17, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanos and Fortunatus and Achaicus. He was in Ephesus, by the way, when he wrote 1 Corinthians. Because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. There are essentially two ways we can interpret this remark in verse 17, which says literally, to fill up your lack. The first is that a few commentators read this as Paul being critical of the church. That they had in some regard been deficient in their response to him or support of of him. And considering the tension and repeated conflict of which there was much between the church and Paul, this is a possible interpretation. These were people who didn't write to Paul to say, uh, here's the situation, what should we do about it? They would write to Paul saying, we don't like what you said, we're doing it this way. So, this is a possibility. The better interpretation, however, is, be- is represented by the ESV, even though it borders on commentary, in my opinion. Quote, because they have made up for your absence. End quote. That's, that's good. It was impossible for the entire church to come see Paul, to visit in person, so the apostle sees these three men as filling the role that that church realistically could not. So he's grateful for that. The word translated coming in, I rejoice over the coming of Stephanos, etc., is parousia, meaning presence or being near and is the familiar word to describe the physical return of Christ. That is, he will now be present next week. So one can acknowledge the poetic symmetry of the ESV. The church was absent from Paul, but the three men were present. Unfortunately, if Paul had meant absence, the normal word for him to use would have been aposia, the opposite of parousia. Instead, he uses husterema, husterema, husterema. I shouldn't even try to pronounce these words. I don't know why I do. Which means a lack or deficit. That's the word he chose. This suggests that his being away from the church had left a gap in his life. We can understand that as well. They were dear to him. He may have been feeling a bit down, perhaps even depressed of late. Why was Paul rejoicing over the presence of these three men? For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Being away from the Corinthians, not being there in person to fellowship with them, had removed something good and encouraging in Paul's life. His spirit needed reviving, much as missionaries need reviving once in a while because they've, by design, they they don't have a body of Christ to encourage them. And the arrival of fellow and fellowship with Stephanos, Fortunatus, and Achaicus brought the refreshment he so very much needed. The word used in all our versions is refreshed. They refreshed him. 
which is not inaccurate, but is actually the result of what the Greek word anaposin means, which might be better translated in the noun form as a respite. They brought a respite to him. The word means to cause to cease, to give rest, an intermission from labor. I think one reason Paul was refreshed by their visit is that it afforded him a brief vacation from his work. These were faithful friends from Corinth and fellowship with them, along with learning from them how things were going in Corinth, was like a cold drink of lemonade in the shade on a hot summer day. That's what it was. He was refreshed. It was refreshing, something different, a break from the routine, along with a time of true koinonia, fellowship with his brothers. Therefore, Paul says, acknowledge such men. And when these men returned to Corinth, they would do the same for the church. They would refresh them by bringing not just the written words of Paul, but news about him. How's he doing? How's his health? What does he look like these days? Is he in prison yet? They would supply necessary refreshment to the church that was sorely needed. A shot in the arm, as it were. And boy, did the Corinth church need it. This was a group of people, the evidence shows, was running a bit thin on doctrine and good common sense. This the members would get in a double dose. The immediate report about Paul from the trio followed by the reading of this letter to them. Our 1 Corinthians. And because of this, Paul expected the church to recognize them. To commend them for this vital work of being the faithful umbilical between them and the apostle. Which they had been doing before and would continue to do. Now, in class, we discussed the next two verses. But for our purpose this morning, let's skip down to verse 21. Greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. As he has and will do again, Paul, who preferred to dictate his letters, in this case probably Sosthenes, authenticates the content of this letter with a statement and signature in his own hand. He reaches over and takes the stylus away from Sosthenes and dips it in the ink and writes. So from the text from here to the end was probably in Paul's oversized print handwriting. We get that from Galatians 6.11. Verse 22 comes like a splash of cold water into this otherwise cordial warm closing. We read this and where did this come from? If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. So what are we to do with this? Love for the Lord is basic. Without that, there's no individual relationship with Christ and hence no church, no body of believers. Love for the Lord was basic to the Jews under the law as represented in the Shema. Hear, O Israel! Let me read Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 7. You don't need to turn to it. I'll try to do it in my best Charlton Heston voice. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And it continues in that vein. 
This is important. Teach your children. Teach your grandchildren. When asked by a lawyer, which was the great commandment in the law, Jesus answered in Matthew 22.37, quoting this passage from Deuteronomy. He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. When Scripture reports, repeats something three times, red light, red flag, pay attention. All. The verb Jesus used for love was agapao, agape, love. A demonstration of the highest, even sacrificial form of love. What does it look like? It looks like Christ on the cross. That's agape. Better love hath no man. In our passage, Paul reduces this requirement to phileo. So he, he downgrades a little bit. And Paul says, he, he, he says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he's saying phileo, which is, an, uh, is love, but it's more of an affectionate, brotherly kind of love. Even so, Paul is saying, if one cannot muster even this nominal form of love for Christ, one is to be accursed, anathema. Tradition, even in the church and secular media, like to portray portions of chapter 13 of this letter in the context of a sappy, squishy, romantic kind of love, which is not at all what Paul means. It's not at all what he's saying. Years ago in another church in another city, far, far away in a galaxy, far, far away, in a Sunday morning adult Sunday school, a friend of ours, a woman, was reading a portion from chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. And by the time she finished, she was in tears. She was all emotional reading that. Why? Because it made her think of her love for her husband. Her husband's love for her. That's all very nice, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul has just written an entire chapter about spirit gifts. Then he writes this at the beginning of chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. The Apostle's point is that no matter what you do as a Christian, no matter with which spectacular gifts you have been endowed, love remains basic. Without it, everything else is utterly worthless. Devoid of value. And we cannot, help but, we cannot help but think back to the painful episodes in the Corinth church that required Paul's instruction, even condemnation. Forget brotherly love for your fellow man. If one calls himself a Christian, a follower of Christ, and does not possess at least this nominal affection for Christ, for who He is and what He did for you, then you're no better than a sacrifice or worthless idol thrown on the fire. That's what the word anathema means. In secular Greek, originally it meant the offering brought to the pagan god and set on the, on the altar to burn, to be sacrificed. That's how it started. But over time, it, became, it came to mean something that's worthless. It's thrown away and just thrown onto the fire to get rid of it. Paul's saying without love, that's what we're worth. God's Word speaks of love as something far more tangible than how it is perceived by society. I can say I love my wife, but if that's not something more active and tangible than a simple emotion, then our marriage couldn't have lasted 50 years. 
The concept was drummed into me by my mother whenever I, as a boy, was a little reluctant to do what she said. Take the papers out and burn them. Shake the rugs. That was my duty, to shake the rugs on the front porch. Or do anything. If I said, yes, Mom, and didn't do it, she said, don't tell me you love me. Show me you love me. That is, if you really love me, she was saying, then obey me. That's love. Just as Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey me. And then Paul appends Maranatha. Opinions vary on why Paul appended to this the expression Maranatha, which is the Greek spelling for two Aramaic words, meaning either our Lord, comma, come, a plea, or our Lord has come, or our Lord will come depending on how one subdivides the Greek letters, which are just strung together. I believe Paul adds this as essentially a warning. Any Corinthians who do not love the Lord should be advised that He is surely coming. And that the Lord's return will bring blessings for some and condemnation for others. To paraphrase this in our own vernacular, God requires that we love Him. And if you don't, you will be cursed when He comes to judge. And believe me, He's coming. Trust me. Paul then inserts his standard closing in verse 23. It's boilerplate, not to say that it isn't, in, it isn't sincere, it's just boilerplate. It's what he... That's how he signs off every one of his letters. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. It's his standard grace benediction with which he concludes his letters. As he signs off each, he extends a wish for grace, charis. If love is foundational to our relationship with God and with his people, his grace is as well. Our relationship with God is possible only through the grace of his gospel the sacrificial grace of His Son. Yes, I'll do it. See what happens. You get up here and you think you can just keep going, keep going. So I'll just be bumping into my own class. So it's all right. So there's nobody sitting down there to give me a dirty look when I... (laughs) Turn to Ephesians 2, please. We, We need to include this. This is good. Ephesians 2... Let's begin with verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And this is... This is unbelievable. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. (laughs) There is no God like our God. None whatsoever. Even if they were real, there's nobody like our God. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Where did your faith come from? God, not you. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Amazing. The closing line in this letter reaffirms my respect for Paul, not just as an evangelist, but one with a pastor, even Father's heart. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. 
In chapter 4, that one I won't read. In chapter 4, he addressed them as their father. Remarkably, only here in all his letters, only here to the cantankerous, obstinate Corinthians, only here does Paul extend this personal sentiment. Only here does he say, my love. Not God's love or Christ's love, but Paul's own personal love. His is a genuine love, the words agape, expressed not just in hugs and kisses, but in sharp reprimands as he's demonstrated throughout this letter. He ends this letter as he began it with a benediction of grace and love. Indeed, his love for the Corinthians is expressed on every page of this letter. In conclusion, Paul's letter to the Corinthians is where our love for Christ meets our love for each other. The two are inexorably entwined. Frankly, we can't be too sure about the Corinthians' love for Christ. Paul refers to them as saints in the very beginning of this letter. But he also closes the letter by stating, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. But we're given plenty of evidence that they struggled in their relationship with each other. Paul makes it clear that the two must flow together as close companions. Our horizontal life with our family, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, reflects the quality of our relationship with the Lord. And that vertical relationship, our love for and adoration of the Lord, informs and energizes how well we live with others. It's all connected. We are to stand firm in our faith, refusing to bend to the will of this fallen culture, remaining strong, resolute, immovable, yet at the same time, quote, let all that you do be done in love. End quote. Love for God. Love for the Savior. Love for the lost. Now let's prepare for our closing song with a word of prayer. Our Father God, oh, teach us your love. We know you love us. Why, we don't know. It has nothing to do with us or what we do. But we accept, we believe in your love for us. Teach us, Father, how to love each other. A strong, sacrificial love. Agape. To your glory and the building up of this church. In Jesus' name, amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You're dismissed.